Diver Debrief, your weekly plunge into the world of scuba, and this week it's Get Green for Big Blue, and to my right is Diver Extraordinaire Sheila Cooley. Why, hello, divers. And so our topic, Get Green for Big Blue, of course, is um, conservation, so marine conservation and ecology and understanding that, okay, we're having a good time, we're out here, we're scuba diving, we're enjoying looking at the fish and mapping wrecks and all this other fun stuff, and we enjoy the equipment, but we also have some responsibility involved. Yeah, absolutely. This is something I'm really passionate about and continually trying to learn more. So I'm looking forward to this podcast. And I am too. And you know, one thing that we talked about before we got into collecting the specifics on what we're going to discuss, we don't want to get preachy and we don't want to be too dramatic. So what we decided to do is look at some data. So, you know, you can't really argue with data. And so some of the things I looked at is there is this thing that's called the Great Plastic Tide. And some of the data I looked at, and this is just a couple of little chunks here, folks, is 150,000 tons of plastic washed up on the shores of Japan in 2015 and 300 tons of plastic on India's coast per day. That's a lot of plastic. What do you think about that, Sheila? It's an incredible amount of plastic, and it's just not going to go away. That's the thing that really scares me is that it's not degrading and it's just – going to keep cycling around in this tide. And I would say, you know, I'm an engineer and a teacher, so I'm kind of an optimist. And there are solutions out there. People are working on things, so don't everybody freak out. But, you know, we need to be aware. Like, this, this is what's going on. And this is data that's from NOAA, which is the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. So this is, like, not a not political-based. We didn't get this from, like, some, like, greensea.com.org or something like that. This is data that was really collected. Mm-hmm. And I like being personality free. Another thing that I looked up was an estimated 100,000 marine mammals, which is dolphins, whales, um, walruses would be considered marine mammals, um, are killed annually by these plastics as well as millions of birds and fishes. And so it's kind of, I mean, you know, it's something we got to be aware of. Like, you know, we're going out into this environment it's this beautiful place that we want to see and that we want to look at the fish and but if we if we don't take care of things you know there's not going to be any fish to look at i guess yeah i mean it is important to know that that plastic is not just uh, unsightly but it is harming the fish and the animals that live in the sea or or depend on the sea like the birds right and so it's not just, you know, knowing what's going on in the dive boat. It's knowing what's going on when we're going to the stores and we're buying products and, you know, using those plastic bags that are so convenient. You know, it's just – it's this is not a personality-based thing. It's all data-based, folks. It's data-based. Another thing I came across um, that's a little on the sad side, oh, close to 100 million sharks are killed annually for a specific practice known as shark fin soup. Have you heard of this, Sheila? I have. I lived in Asia. Um, I lived in the Philippines. And there's a lot of information in um, awareness building over there about this problem. Um, it's where they uh, want to build 
make this soup it's a, or traditional medicines using just the shark fin. Right. Uh, so they they catch the sharks, they cut off the fins, and then they put the sharks back in the ocean, but they just drown to yeah, death. they don't have fins. They don't have fins. They can't swim. And they just, I mean, that's like somebody just walking up and like, I'm going to cut off your legs. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, and I'm not walking anymore. And I mean, that's a hundred million, a hundred million. Now I have to say, some people say, oh, great. No sharks in the ocean. Like I'm safe to go oh. there now. But in fact, because they're an apex predator and they're at the top of the food chain, they're a critical piece of the entire food chain. And so it's affecting the entire ecosystem. Well, not only that, but you know, one thing that I've found as a newer diver, as I get a little bit more used to the water and, you know, I asked the question, <laughs> I did, I asked Sheila, my, one of my instructors, you know, are these fish going to run into me? No, they're afraid of you. And the chances of you getting attacked by a shark are super slim. Less than a hundred people a year in the entire world are killed by shark attacks. And most of the time that's just like some kind of accidental thing. Yeah. Most of it's swimmers or people on the, the surface of the water, not divers. So that's then I got one last thing that we wanted to look at was and and I don't quite understand this is this other thing is called coral bleaching? Yeah, coral bleaching. Um, it's not you know chemicals being poured on on the corals, but it. That's is. what it sounded like to me when <laughs> exactly I first heard about it. Like I'm going down there, like I'm gonna you know do my laundry in the <laughs> in the coral. <laughs> um, in fact, it's the um, acidification of the ocean, um, the rising or the actually the lowering of the pH, so it's becoming more um, acidic. Right is. Killing the microorganisms that give the color to the corals. Oh, wow. And so the corals are becoming white. And this is happening as the temperature increases in the uh, ocean and pollutants are going into the ocean, um, like runoff. Uh, oh, so like stormwater runoff. Yeah. So those those uh, carbons that, that get into the ocean and Absolutely. and and you're talking about warming. Is this warming? Yeah, the global so, warming thing again. Oh, yeah, gosh. of course. I mean, it's we gotta such wake a, up to this. It's folks. such a political topic here in the U.S. Although I don't um, understand it's, how it's political. It's it's data based. But it, it, it you know the CO two the rising CO two emissions are being they're saying estimating thirty to forty percent of the emissions created by humans are being absorbed by our lakes, rivers, and oceans. So well, that's scary stuff. That uh, CO two is then going somewhere and impacting the ocean itself. Well, now, now I say, well, who cares if the coral gets bleached? Like, what does it matter? Who cares about that? Why should I care? Well, the corals are the is essentially the the city structure for which the entire all the fish um, it's the ecosystem. Are, it's the ecosystem. It's there. It's Food. where they live, and um, it's where they breed, and then they go off, and they you know. It's a safe place for them to live. Yeah, so and and so the CO two. So it's almost like. You know, we're we're burning these fossil fuels. And, you know, folks, this is not a personality-based or political-based problem. This is data. You know, once again, we're really avoiding being dramatic about it. The data is dramatic on its own. And so you have this warming of the environment. You have this excess of uh, carbon dioxide. It's getting absorbed into the ocean, and then it's producing this acid. What is this? There's an acid? Carbonic acid. Carbonic acid. Yeah, because yeah. the CO2 mixes with the water and... And creates carbonic acid. Yeah. This is scary stuff. This is scary stuff. Um, it's very real and it's happening in a pretty small time frame compared to what things normally happen on the planet's scale. Well, and I think that for a lot of people, the ocean is so big that it's like, oh, it doesn't really affect me. And the ocean can absorb 
all these problems and the reality is, well, maybe, you know, there's a tipping point and we mm -hmm. need to be aware that there is a tipping point and, and there's a lot more data. There's so much more data. And I think when we come back in our next segment, we're going to talk about what it is that one can do to be a more conscientious diver. And um, we also have an interview this week with uh, Professor Elaine, what's her, she's a ichthymologist at UVM, the University of Vermont. Um, yeah, so we talked to, that with um, Dr. Ellen Marsden. Ellen Marsden, okay, yeah, from that's UVM. right. From yeah. UVM. And she's from Great Britain. So this week I'm thinking for music we got to do some uh, British Invasion rock. <laughs> so I think that's going to be pretty good. So yeah. what do you say? We listen to a little bit of rock. Uh, all right. Let's, let's listen to some Herman Hermits. Woke up this morning feeling fine. There's something special on my Diver Debrief, your weekly plunge into the world of scuba, and I'm your host, Philip Peterson. I'm here with Sheila Cooley, and this is our Diver Profile segment. We're here with Professor Ellen Marsden from the University of Vermont, and this is Diving Environment and Conservation, Take Only Pictures, Leave Only Bubbles. And so, Dr. Marsden, I had a question for you right off the bat. Um... How is it that you got to be a, what do you call an ectomologist, ethicomologist, I can't even pronounce it? Ichthyologist. Ichthyologist, yes. Somebody who studies ichthyo, which is the Greek for fish. So. Ichthyo, all right, who studies fish. And you're also a scuba diver. Well, it's the right place to, the right way to get to see the organism you're studying. You've got to be in their environment, and so scuba is the way to do it. So what came first, the chicken or the egg? Was it the scuba that came first or the ichthyologist? Ich, uh, it was the scuba, right. It was the scuba first, and you have an accent. So are you from Arkansas or Minnesota? Deepest, darkest Brooklyn. No, no, I grew up in north, uh, northern England, um, but I came to the United States long before I learned how to dive. And I learned my diving in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Right on. And so I came across a story before we started talking about a uh, man-made, human-made pond that you grew up near. And this is how you were exposed to fish. And so you, this is where you like got this fascination with these creatures, correct? Can you tell me a little bit about that? As, as a small child, there was a, as you say, there was an unnatural pond uh, that, that developed near our home due to some diggings, and I was intrigued by just fresh water, and I always loved to swim, and just the idea of being able to look into water and see things swimming in three dimensions and see organisms you wouldn't normally come across fascinated me. And so I learned to dive when I was actually a bird biologist. I had nothing to do with fish whatsoever, but I thought diving would be fun, and I happened to be in Woods Hole doing bird research. And I learned how to dive. And uh, a couple of years later, I got a scientific diving certificate. And well, and then the story evolves. Do you want to keep going? Totally. No, keep. That's, but the whole idea of somebody dug a hole, water accumulated, and then there was life. That's exactly. And that's exactly how it felt as a six-year-old kid. Amazing. Is there was this little muddy pond, and I'm sitting at it, looking at this lovely water at one point, and this, this newt swims to the surface. I'm going, 
look, it just generated life. And it was, it was miraculous. It was great fun. And I wanted to be there and part of it. And so we got to dive into haha, the diving environment and conservation. As a diver, you have an impact on the environment. And obviously, we want to be careful. And so now you think of this hole that is dug and there's life there, or it was. And so now, you know, scoot ahead a few years, you become this ichthymo- Oh, gosh. You study fish. Um, and you realize that we're impacting the environment. Humans are impacting the environment. Give me, give me some insight there, your thoughts. One of the, the, it's really interesting teaching ichthyology and, and any other kind of you know, fish science because by being a diver, you really understand what that environment is like. Divers can have an impact, per se, on, on the environment. One of the biggest warnings you get is never break off corals, don't, don't put your fins on corals because they're very, very fragile. But there's not a great deal of damage other than collecting that the, the divers might do. But the flip side is you begin to appreciate the damage that we can do in other ways in the environment. You don't know what damage, say, um, m- m- uh, an outboard motor or a trawl does to the environment until you can see it underwater. And it's only really in the last two or three decades we've begun to see the damage that fishing gear has done because of scuba divers and, and uh, looking and, and, and remotely operated vehicles. Um, sound is something we never really appreciated as something that could impact fish until you're down there in your dive gear and you hear a boat going over. You go, wow, that's loud, and begin to realize the fish are hearing it too. And, and, and so research has started recently just looking at the impact of sound on stress in fish, and it's huge. So being a diver helps you understand what it is that we need to worry about and therefore help us conserve natural resources. So we're talking about human impacts, conservation, the environment, what do you feel like is an observation that you've made that is the most significant or scary or just like, oh, my goodness, this just would blow your mind? <laughs> well, it blow my mind as a scientist. It might be, it might be different. Okay, that's not good science. Okay? We're not, <laughs> right. Scientists don't do that. We oh, just collect data. all the time. No worries. Um, a lot of what I do involves being able to see underwater. And so an example of this is uh, I study lake trout restoration. So we're trying to restore self-sustaining populations of lake trout. And one of the things you need to do for that is to make sure that they have appropriate habitat for spawning. And so at the very beginning of my career, we didn't know what that habitat looked like. Uh, so, so it, and, and that's where I, I sort of came into the diving as a scientist, saying we need to go underwater. We need to see what the habitat, habitat is where these, where these fish are spawning. Um, more recently, and, and so we were able to define what it is that a lake trout prefers. More recently, we've been able to make observations in, in, in Lake Huron. Um, we'd made an assumption that their habitat had been destroyed by uh, bad use of the landscape and too much deposition of lime kiln dust, etc., but by diving, we're able to realize, no, 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 this excellent habitat out here that nobody had identified previously. And so that was, that was exciting. I mean, th- this was huge boulder fields that nobody even knew existed because nobody had gone down and taken a look and, and looked, looked with the eye of a biologist saying, oh, that's good spawning habitat. So for us, that's pretty exciting. That's exciting. But to put it in terms for like, you know, just... Philip Peterson walking down the street, not knowing anything, and to make an impact and go, hey, you need to be aware that this is going on, and this is what we need to do to change this or improve. So, I mean, ultimately, Jacques Cousteau talks about how the ocean is the mother of the planet, right? And so, our fresh water, that's kind of like our water. It's, we got to drink it to survive. So, you need to tell me as a human being, these are the things that we need to do, some changes we need to make. 
A lot of the changes that we see, a lot of the problems we see as a scuba diver, honestly, are the same problems we see from the surface. And the biggest one locally is blue-green algae blooms. And you hear a lot about blue-green algae blooms in Vermont because we have problems with eutrophication. So at the surface, you can see these things because the, the blue-green algae float and, and they make the water basically green at the surface. But when you're diving, they're impacting you in a different way. Now, instead of looking at a scum from the surface and going, oh, that's kind of unattractive, you're actually immersed in this stuff and saying, wow, I used to be able to see what I was looking for underwater. I could navigate, I could see fish. And now you're in this basically literally a pea soup. And that pea soup is living material, but of course, the problem with it is it's uh, the cyanobacteria, the blue-green algae, is And of course, toxic. I am, used to be a civil engineer in a different life, so I know where that comes from. Yes, yeah. It comes from too much phosphorus, too many nutrients. Too much poop. Yeah. Well, and too much poop, right. But it's a, it's a combination of all of them sliding off our landscape into the water, fertilizing the water. Now we've got too much algae. That stuff dies. When it dies, it takes up oxygen. When it degrades, and it suffocates fish, and you get fish kills. And so all, all of that is very apparent when you're, you're, again, you're immersed in the medium, you're immersed in the water going, wow, it's, um, it's pretty grotty down here. Right, and so some of that's farm runoff, some of that is wastewater system runoff, some of that is stormwater runoff, uh, impervious surfaces. Right. As a civil engineer, I know when you do stormwater uh, design, you got to make sure, you know, what's my impervious surface impact, you know, all, and some of this is boring to people. I understand this, but why, why should anybody else care? Because, well, for one thing, that's their water supply, but, but more importantly, it's impacting all of the natural resources in the lake. Fish don't like, uh, 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 well, that's, I shouldn't say fish don't like in general. There are some fish that really like a very turbid, warm, uh, uh, nutrient-rich environment, but, it, but it, it changes the environment of fish, so it changes the distribution of fishes. There's one particular fish that's in the area in Missisquoi Bay that, that used to be so abundant that it supported a commercial fishery. And, and that's, that's big. This is a white fish. It's a very um, tasty fish. It's the mainstay of the Great Lakes commercial fisheries. With all of that algae, all of that productivity in the bay comes sedimentation. Everything that lives dies. It settles to the bottom. When it settles to the bottom, it suffocates fish eggs. It suffocates small organisms that can be the base of the food web or, or, or fish food. And we've seen the loss of that commercial fishery in Missisquoi Bay and the loss of other fish, fishes in Missisquoi Bay because the bottom is now just solid sediment. And that sediment is hugely accumulated since humans, I shouldn't say that, and since Europeans started really changing the landscape around Missisquoi Bay. So, and now we, we got an idea on what it is that we need to do. Um, what, I guess just to kind of like change things into a little bit more positive light here, what aspect of your work are you most satisfied with? I mean, I've, you've got a lot of material that you've produced, a lot of work that you've done, but what do you say you're most proud of? And I think it, it comes back to, to the lake trout that we're trying to restore. We have a much, much better understanding of what the, the habitat requirements are and the behavior of lake trout are now that we can be in their environment and watch what they're doing. A lot of the work we're doing right now is actually with video, with remotely operated vehicles. It gets a little cold to dive in November, December. Um, <laughs> just just watching the, 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 the behavior of these fish and understanding it's what like they're doing is very exciting. The oh, it's much toastier than that. It's got to be at least 39. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. But I'd much rather the video got cold than I did, so we, we let it do its work. And the, the fish don't mind it quite quite so much as me. Yeah, of course. Um, but but which, just, just learning very basically things we could have never dreamt of before because we couldn't be there. And just, just being there and seeing what's going on makes a world of difference. 
Sounds like you enjoy this. Oh, I love this. This is great stuff. <laughs> future explorer. Yeah. So what are your future plans? Oh, keep doing it as long as I can. Uh, we're doing work now up in Yellowstone Lake on, on lake trout suppression uh, because they're a nuisance species. Um, we're doing uh, you know, work in Champlain, obviously. But, uh, and and the, other, the other type of work and other whole branch is just looking at effects of exotic species. You know, zebra mussels on shipwrecks. You know, Maritime Museum um, is doing some amazing work conserving shipwrecks in the face of some pretty bad damage by, by zebra mussels. And so oh, that, mussels, oh it's, it's just bad stuff. So. I'm curious, um, we've got some divers out there listening to this. How does one become involved and be a science diver? How does one become a science diver? That's a, that's, that's a great question. Um, obviously, just getting credentials and becoming a, a, a you know, fully-blown researcher. Um, many of my students assist, you know, my, my graduate students and undergraduates have assisted with what we're doing. That's part of their learning experience, becoming a fisheries biologist. Um, we value the observations of recreational divers. You know, people come to me periodically and say they've seen something interesting. And more than once, that's led to us discovering, for example, a new spawning site that has become a research site. So, so it, it's birders, for example, are invaluable in ornithology, invaluable in, in, in bird science, because there are all these eyes watching and making observations. By the same token, anybody who's watching with a mind behind the eyes and thinking about what they're seeing and reporting unusual sightings or something new uh, can be absolutely fantastic because we can't be there all the time. Lots more people can be. All right, I love that. So divers out there, water, come to Waterfront Diving Center. Let us know on Facebook if you see something really cool. We'll pass it along to Ellen. That's that. There you go. So Ellen, thank you very much uh, for letting us interview you today. And I'm feeling like we got to do some like British Invasion rock. Okay, yeah. yeah so let's uh, maybe some Who. Oh, lovely. <laughs> see with uh, Mr. Bill Evans who happens to be a world famous world renowned world renowned just worldly worldly <laughs> weather reporter weatherman yeah meteorologist author uh, best-selling New York Times best-selling author meteorologist but I'm a diver and I really like scuba diving well I think you should be famous for how amazing your hair is sir it's uh, you know you hair you can never you know underestimate you can never have enough of <laughs> Well, mine's going. All TV people have good hair. It's a prerequisite. Fantastic. Well, uh, to give our divers some context, we went and saw you host, MC last night, the International Film Festival at Beneath the Sea. Yeah, that was so much fun. And the films last night were great. And, you know, the Beneath the Sea people did a really good job of lining up, you know, exceptional work that was from all over 
the spectrum of diving. I mean, it, if you if you like to dive or if you don't like to dive, the film festival is great because you see great artwork, you see the beauty of the sea, you see all the creatures and the stars of the the films. Of course, is what lies beneath the ocean. You know, you always hear, well, the Earth is 78% water, and you should really check it out and see what's beneath because you're really missing out by by not seeing all the the beauty of the things that are down below. And, and then, of course, the film. Uh, the film festival teaches conservation, you know, and protecting the oceans and lakes and rivers and and the, the creatures that live there and clean water and and all that sort of thing. And so I've done a lot of research on all the plastic that is in the ocean is unbelievable, and uh, which is more of a threat to our oceans than any climate change or global warming. And so if you could get countries, uh, you know, our own, but all the others that we could keep the oceans clean, you know, that's a good place to start right there. Absolutely, I would agree with that 100%. I'm curious, how did you get into diving? It was a, a total accident. And uh, of course, I almost killed myself doing it. But I, I was, I, I've done the weather on location all over the world. And so the last really thing that we had not done was do the weather underwater. And the technology had really come along to be able to do the weather from down below. And so 25 years, 28 years ago, I was invited to come to the grand opening of the Florida Aquarium in Tampa. And they said, you know, we've had all these other major weathermen here before, but nobody's ever done the weather underwater. Would you like to do the weather underwater? We have the technology. And so I said, sure. They go, well, for insurance purposes, you need to be certified by a... Which would make sense. By a by, by patty. Or, and I had no idea what a patty was. Or, you know, or, a nowie, a patty, whatever. None, none of that, you know. And so I said, well, okay, I'll go get, I'll go get certified. But the the company wanted to do this dive in February. Well, the waters are warm in February, but I had to get certified in New York City. Oh, so, well, it's funny because I'm getting my certification right now, and in two weeks I'm doing my checkout dives in Lake Champlain in Vermont, where it's going to be 38 degrees. Yeah, you're going to enjoy that. Trust me. <laughs> I'm going to have to enjoy it. I don't really have much of a choice, but I'm from Minnesota, so I'm hardy stock. Oh, good. You got you got to see. I'm from Mississippi, and we we have. Oh, no, yeah, there's no cold. There's no, we don't even have ice there. Well, we have a river in Minnesota that's called the Mississippi. Yes, and you could step across it there. It's so so thin there. By the time you get to Mississippi, it's a mile and a half wide. There you go. But that's how I got. I got dive suit, water, dry suit certified and certified in the cold waters of Lynbrook, Long Island, where the visibility oh was two inches. All right. So, but but by the time you get to Florida and you go in the warm water, it was worth it all. I've been diving ever since. So I got uh, became a master diver, dive master, and uh, because of Maria Holtz and Bob Ricky, uh, we're we're working on instructor and all that kind of stuff. So, just just kept I fell in love with it. Been wreck diving, uh, I try big certified now. All that, all that kind of stuff. So that that is so cool. What a great story. Now, uh, do you have a favorite spot that you like to dive, or any uh, That's a great recommendations? You've been, to, you've obviously had the opportunity to go around and see a lot. Well, we're about to head to uh, Dominica and and dive that. We're also and uh, and that's we're we're very excited about going to that spot. And then Maldives. we're going we're going to the Maldives. And I wrote a book, a New York Times bestselling book about the Maldives, but I've never been there. Oh, well, you should go. You should go check it out. It's called Blackmail Earth, um, and it was just sold uh, over in Europe. It just uh, The rights were picked up in Turkey. Uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a terrorism book uh, about uh, weather, uh, terrorism, and uh, techno. It's a techno thriller. And uh, it's about some people who figure out, who are worried about uh, global warming, but they figure out that you can put iron ore in the ocean and create global cooling. But you could put too much iron ore in the ocean and create global cooling on a scale that could be catastrophic for the Earth. 
So that's what the book is about. Interesting. Yeah, so it did really well. But it's about the Maldives, and I've never been there. But we're going to go there and and do a liveaboard, and we're very excited about it. Liveaboard, yeah, a lot of people are talking about that, too. Yeah, so we're going to be going with... The Man Theory, and yeah. we'll be we'll be down there. So we're very excited about that. Yeah, excellent. That's a, that's awesome. That's so yeah. exciting. We really appreciate the um, your hosting last night at the International Film Festival. It was so exciting, and just your passion for diving definitely yes. came across, and, well, and appreciating the conservation. I think you know if you if you love the sea, and I and I love the sea. Pretty awesome, and now I know how to say ichthymologist. You say she is a role model, really just an inspiration. She's just, a rock star in the science world, she much really like is. the Who is their <laughs> rock stars in the rock world. She's like a rock star in the ichthymology world. It's so true. And and it was really awesome to see her actually in the process of teaching. She captivated um, your class, this the scuba diving class. She's really just a pleasure to have as a guest speaker. We're so lucky and so knowledgeable. And the work she's doing for Lake Champlain is so important, which is, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Segway <laughs> into like learning stuff because, you know, I threw out a bunch of data and some of this data can be a little scary. All this plastic in, in the world, in the ocean and, you know, all this marine mammals being killed and shark fin soup and coral bleaching and all this scary stuff. And as a one little human being, I'm... I'll be like, ah, it's too much. What can I do? I don't know what to do. How can I help? What can I do to help? It is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. So um, I have a little thing that I I break it up into me, we, and us. Ooh, okay. So what can I do? One single old diver. What can I do? Me. You can be a conscientious diver. A few things that involves uh, buoyancy control. So you know, don't go crashing down to the reef and physically damaging right. it. Um, as you're swimming along on a reef, pick up some trash that you see. Um, if you see something that's uh, alarming to you about the environment, alert the dive operators. Uh, they, If they hear that enough, they're going to do something about it. Yeah, because they, they want people to come back. They want people to come back. And so they're going to um, be in concerned about that well the whole buoyancy control thing it it sounds like a small thing but it's not and i know for (laughs) me you know i had some issues with the buoyancy stuff um i would and thank goodness we were in the pool i'd go crashing into the bottom you know at 12 feet i'm like feel like a yo-yo going up and down and up the pool is a great place to learn your buoyancy control before you go out to the reef and jack up some beautiful environment ecosystem with your your dumb body because you don't control it. Yeah, absolutely. Buoyancy is one of the hardest skills to learn. <coughs> um, and so 
definitely practicing the pool is a great way to do it. I think a lot of divers are really fearful about damaging the reef. They don't intentionally do it. Right. Um, but asking dive operators to take you out for a checkout dive to a, maybe a nice sandy bottom or somewhere where there's nothing that you can hurt to you check out. You just muck up the bottom and not muck yeah, up the- Yeah, maybe destroy the visibility, but that's the worst thing you're going to hurt. And um, and you can check out your weighting, you know, how much weight did you put on, figure out your equipment, and kind of get comfortable with it if you've been out of the water for a while. Get dialed in before you go crashing into the reef that you wanted to take this picture of. Absolutely. A couple of things you could do also is before your trip, do a refresher course, get in the pool. Um, I know we offer those at Waterfront Diving Center. A lot of dive shops open uh, offer that throughout the winter. So before your vacation, kind of get that all squared mm. away. So in other words, before you go right in that check to Greenpeace, maybe you should know how to actually operate your diving equipment before you hit the lake or the lake or the ocean or wherever, yeah, you're, wherever going. you're going. Yeah, wherever you're going. Yeah, absolutely. So that's me. Yeah, that's me. Um, you, I was going to say one other thing you can do is do a peak performance buoyancy class, which is usually part of an advanced course, but you can Ooh. also take it separately. Work that with an instructor awesome. and really hone in on your weighting and body and trim position in the water. I want to take that class. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's my favorite class. No, I want to take that class, like literally, because <laughs> the buoyancy is it's out of control for me, I'm not in control. So the, the, that's me. Yeah, so we, that's what can we do? Me, your buddy, get your little dive group together. You guys can go out and do a cleanup dive in your area. Um, there's that adage, uh, think globally, act locally. Ah, mm-hmm. yes, exactly. Um, and then um, there's things you could get involved in. I know down in Bonaire, there's a coral restoration project that was going on. They were growing corals. Folks could actually do that on their vacation, go and w- help restore the corals in Bonaire. So you're, you're a scuba diver. You're going on vacation. You're having a good time. That's great. But if you're serious about scuba diving for people in the future, it's a good idea to get involved. And, and as you said, you guys went to Bonaire and it wasn't just margaritas and hanging out and like, whoop dee doo It was you guys actually got involved in some stuff. Well, we didn't this trip, but we're going to do it on our next trip down there. Right on. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. You have to plan in advance for that one. Um, so a lot of places um, have a conservation fee. Oh, okay. Um, either per day or for your entire trip for that. Um, I know they have the that year. in Bonaire, right? They do, yeah. And they, when I worked in the Philippines, we had it there as well. And that usually um, goes directly into conserving the area and the ecosystem. Makes sense. And so you can learn more about that and where is it going. And some they'll often take donations. Um, you know, you can support that work that the really important work that's often underfunded. And it makes sense too. I mean, you got to pay right tolls. To you got to pay yeah. tolls when you're on the highway and a lot of major u.s freeways so you're yeah and usually it's very small i mean i know in the philippines it was like three or four bucks a day wow okay so peanuts yeah that's not much um so um that's uh the we that's me Uh, we we. yeah awesome so now uh, i guess one thing i didn't mention was um as you're on on these vacations and you are down sitting down to dinner with your friends after a great dive you look at the menu and you see some fish. You want to ask the question, is that the fish I'm, I'm looking, hoping to see the next day? Um, right. So think about that. Think about being sustainably caught. One great option is lionfish, especially oh, yeah. in the Caribbean. Because it's an invasive species. Yeah. So, you know, you want to think about, are these fish um, in critical danger is lionfish tasty overfished is it tasty it's very tasty it's a nice white fish okay delicious not greasy yeah (laughs) yummy okay so that makes sense yeah and it's like the shark fin soup i mean that exactly why are we shark fin souping folks i mean you know 
Anyways. Yeah, exactly. It's just like that. Same idea. Okay. And then um, the last thing is um, the us. So what is – there's a lot of really cool projects. Um, I know, Philip, you posted a bunch of resources on our blog. I did. You know, I, I did some research on this. It's really hard to know. I mean, you know, you as one person, it's so big. The problem's so big. And how can I get involved? And no matter where you fall in the political spectrum, I I did this research and I found all these websites and different organizations – that are involved in marine conservation in different ways, whether it's applying science and economics and policy um, to community partnership so that they can protect the ecosystem, or whether it's like, you know, Greenpeace or, you know, environmental defense. As I said, wherever you fall on the political spectrum, and notice we're not getting political here. I mean, it's the environment, it's the ecosystem. And wherever you fall in there, you want the environment to be there. You want it to be there for you and you want it to be there for your children and your children's children in the future. And so that's what we're talking about here. We're trying to keep this ecosystem there. So if you go to diverdebrief.blogspot.com, you can check out all these different websites and organizations, big menu of those, and choose yourself. You know, you investigate it. There's there's different flavor for everyone's fair. Yeah, that's there's so much to know out there. There's so many interesting projects. Um, I was exposed to marine protected areas in the Philippines. Mm, I got to visit right. a few, um, and they're really interesting. They're usually focused on an economic model where they're trying to give jobs to the fishermen so that they're actually in support of protecting the area rather than fighting against it. Um, you and also you can look at um, the whole system of diving. So. Um, what is the resort doing? That's um, are they trying to conserve water? What's going on with their runoff? Is it going mm, right into the right, ocean? Yeah, right. um, you know, so thinking about the impact of diving and all these places that you're going to, or even just in your in your hometown, what's going on so that you can conserve and help the the local the local, local habitat? habitat. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And I know, like when we went to Beneath the Sea, we had an opportunity to see what companies are doing you know they're they're thinking about this there's the newer sunscreens that are out there that are the reef safe the stream to sea is a organization that's got this new sunscreen that's safe for reefs so it's things that like people are just becoming aware you know we weren't aware now we're aware so now we want to become consciously competent in what it is that we're doing when we go and dive yeah absolutely i mean i don't i don't think anyone intentionally harms these no, it's their a, environments it, but you want to be aware of your impact it's totally yeah. unconscious incompetence people are just unaware and now that yeah. we're aware we have to be consciously competent we have to make sure that we're we're doing our best to keep this environment protected yeah and there's a lot of fun ways to do it. i mean most of it involves getting out and diving more <laughs> uh, that's i'm for that yay sign me up for that one so anyways i think we've covered this topic pretty well yeah this is great and i think at this point we're, we're gonna wrap things up and as i would say any other week make sure you have your tanks inspected once a year, be a good dive buddy and make sure you're having fun out there.